Welcome back to another Ag Watchers episode. We've got another Andrew, Andrew Henderson, back on again. I think he was back. He was. You were on Andrew six months ago. Yeah, it would be at least. Um, yeah, it's gone. It's gone pretty quickly. So that Thank would you be. You'd, you'd be one of the few guests who've been on, been brave enough to come on more than once. Brave or foolish enough to come foolish. on more than once. <laughs> <laughs> Glutton for punishment. <laughs> Andrew, just give us give us a like. Obviously, most people have listened to the previous podcast, but give us. We're here to talk about EID tags. You know, mm-hmm. we just keep it nice and non-controversial. <laughs> and uh, so, give us a bit of a background into why I guess you're qualified to talk about EID tags. Because you've done a bit in sheep sure. Trans- traceability. Sure, sure. Yeah, look, look. Um, of, of most relevance would be my work with um, Safe Meat. Uh, so I chair the Safe Meat Advisory Group. Uh, if anybody has never heard of Safe Meat in the red meat and livestock sector, by all means, jump online to safemeat.com.au, I think it is, and you'll find out all about uh, the work of Safe Meat. Uh, but effectively, it's a it's a platform of collaboration between industry and government that that uh, looks after policy for the um, integrity system policy for the red meat and livestock sector. So, the intersection of that, particularly as it pertains to food safety. Uh, the intersection of that, obviously, is traceability. Uh, traceability has um, a big, um, a high level of relevance for food safety and biosecurity. And so um, a couple of years ago, we were asked by the National Biosecurity Committee, which is a government committee that sits underneath the um, agriculture ministers, to look at what short-term reform options um, uh, and then ultimately medium and long-term reform options to the National Livestock Identification System look like. So we used SafeMeat as a platform to be able to do that because we have basically the whole red meat and livestock sector supply chain, including state and Commonwealth government representatives. So well-placed to develop up a series of recommendations for reforming that system, which we did, um, gave that report to government back in 2020, March 2020, just before COVID descended upon us. And so that's been uh, basically my entree into uh, traceability, sheep traceability in particular, obviously being the contro um, most contrary sort of side of that, controversial side of that with regard to the, you know, changes in technology and methodology of tagging and all of that type of stuff. Right, oh, you know it's coming up. <laughs> was hoping to avoid it, but... <laughs> well, we didn't have the sixth cent on last time you are on, Andrew. No, so I think we did. No, did we? I don't, I don't think we did. No, started. you didn't. You didn't. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> it's even more important that we do it now. I thought we'd yeah. already done that. Well, you know, okay. we have to. Every, everyone that comes back on will get a run of it, won't they? Hmm. But most people won't come back on for a second time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, let's do it. six cents. Quick answers, because we're on tight time frame, as Matt's mm-hmm. going to go away soon. Crocs. Comfort. Good answer. Biosecurity. Uh, oh, goodness, bottle. EID versus visual tags. It's hard to answer that with one word. It could be one sentence. But effective versus not as effective. Uh, haggis. Don't know. Don't know what it is. Or just don't <laughs> no, know. No, I know what it is. I've never never tried it. Never had the, never had the pleasure. It's never too late to try it, boy. Don't be keen. Where are we up to? We've got one more. I think two more. Disease risk at present. Uh, heightened. You made them learn it now. Uh, the Victorian EID rollout. 
mm. um, ahead of its time. Very good. Very good. There we go. Well, we, we, and we mentioned, I mean, obviously, biosecurity, we've, had, we've been chatting a bit about biosecurity, you have to be under a rock. If you mm. weren't aware of the, of the immediate concerns at the moment with uh, lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease just on our border. African In, swine fever. That, that was... Everyone's, that, for, everyone's forgetting about for, that. Forgotten but. about it. But you would have thought with COVID, obviously COVID's not you know impacting livestock. But um, you, you know, you think people's kind of concerns and understanding around viruses and diseases is much more heightened after COVID. Um, but yet, there's not that much when you think about how how kind of crucial or how how damaging it could be if we get lumpy skin or or ASF or foot and mouth disease in Australia. There still hasn't been that much in the mainstream media about that. I don't think. No, I think the, um, the, the degree to which uh, those diseases can impact our country, you know, at a, at a very fundamental level um, is completely under, under, uh, misunderstood and underrated. And certainly that's, that's true across government as well as across, across the sector. So we've done some work and I've, I've written about this recently, um, in particular about the, the connection between biosecurity and biosecurity's role in food security, even though we're an you know, export leveraged um, country, uh, and the and, role and in if, national and if, security. And if you want to hear about that, we spoke about that in the last podcast, I believe. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. And it's, it's as relevant now, more relevant now than what it was even then, because, uh, you know, you start taking out, and particularly post-COVID, Matt, with regard to, you know, the economic heavy lifting that's required, you know, to, to pull us through and um, get us through the, you know, the strong economic headwinds and all the language that gets used by politicians um, at the moment. But obviously, there are some significant um, macroeconomic concerns uh, going to confront us. We need every single sector across the economy, which includes agriculture, uh, to be firing on all eight cylinders. Uh, and so if we lose that, then that's a, that's a significant concern to the country. But then you've got also, you know, a range of other impacts that are, that are probably unable to be you know, we talked about the mental health issues that you guys have covered, and particularly, Andrew, with your experience in Scotland and so on, um, having seen it firsthand over there. Um, but, you know, the residual and secondary uh, impacts that would come out of an FMD or a lumpy skin disease outbreak to regional Australia generally, all of the businesses that are connected to ag in some way or another that would, you know, that would um, that would be impacted some way somehow. So, I, I, still, um, I still think probably the biggest actual impact would not be on livestock. Because there's some compensation for livestock. I think the biggest impact would most likely be on tourism. Because I don't think there's any, there's not actually any compensation scheme for, in, as part of the cull program, for if you're a tourism operator. Or on mental health. Mental health. Mental health. Like, you might be getting paid, but it's a matter of, you know, if you have to dispose of animals, you, you might not be getting paid the full amount, though. What You might be getting paid a, a cents in the dollar on the value of the animal. And, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you a story, actually, about the mental health issues of foot and mouth that my mother, my dear Linda, reminded me of last week was my father's, one of my father's workmates' daughter. So a bit of a connection there. Um, they had a goat, 20, 21-year-old girl. They had a pet goat, and the vet came in to cull it. And she ended up getting arrested because she bit the police officer who was trying to... And it was a bit of a, a, a sort of a hold off as they as the police tried to enter the property to, to cull this goat. And in the end, she got no charges laid against her because of extenuating circumstances. So obviously, it was clearly a pretty distressing time in that part of the world. Well, the, you know, you talk about COVID. Think about the fact that um, in the context of COVID, the tourism sector's 
really shaky, uh, you know, economically. And so are the range of other other resources that have been impacted really heavily, like mental health services and all of that type of thing. So it's not exactly like we'd be walking into this from a position of strength, you know. Uh, the um with that, with the risk, I think last time we had you on, Andrew, this is all pre um, both foot and mouth disease and lappy skin mm -hmm. being in Indonesia and, and so pressing on the border. But I think we did speak a bit about the risk factors of how likely an incursion of something like FMD was. And I think back then it was around, let's say, 9% chance. Yep. Um, I believe that's being revised. Is that is that work being done, to your knowledge? Is, is it now been revised that the risk has gone up? And if so, how much? Yeah, I know it was... Yeah, um, Mark Ship did uh, talk about uh, the Commonwealth um, Chief Veterinary Officer uh, has intended to redo that work. It was 9% uh, of, of 9 likelihood or probability of FMD coming in the next five years. And uh, and I think lumpy skin disease was, I think, 13%. I could, yeah. Don't quote me on yeah. that. But um, uh, regardless, uh, given what's happened in Indonesia, they, they looked at revising. But I don't. If, if the work's been done, it hasn't been published yet, to my knowledge, but certainly the intention was there. So we're looking forward to seeing what that looks like. But it's not going to be any lower, though, is it? It's going to oh, be certainly not. No, no so, that, that's exactly right. You know, and the other thing you've got to consider, too, is that uh, people talk about the fact that we managed to defeat foot and mouth disease uh, once before, back in the 80s, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's a very significant achievement and a demonstration of bilateral cooperation, which we will need to re re repeat and that they're actively working, you know, government to government and industry to industry now. But it's a very different landscape to what it was in the 80s. And we're living in a very trade-disrupted world, which means our trade patterns and flows are completely, um, in a lot of cases, upended, which means our risk profiling is under a lot of pressure as well. So um, there's definitely some challenges associated with it this go-round, and that, that will, I think, also increase increase the risk factor. And I think the other thing as well is that ABEAR, I think it was ABEAR's put out a report back in 2013, quoting mm. $50 billion for... Mm. But clearly, in that time, we've got cattle prices and live and sheep prices, yeah, uh, at much higher levels. Yeah, uh, we've got a grains industry that's more focused on domestic consumption than it was eight years ago, mm -hmm. nine years ago, and so you'd expect that number to be significantly higher, even just from an inflation point of view. So, oh, certainly, yeah, yeah, I'd expect it to be eighty or hundred billion now. Yep, and uh, yeah. Yeah. which is a considerable drain on the economy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the solution, well, the first solution is to keep it out. That's easy enough. Absolutely. <laughs> well, not easy yeah. enough, but that's that's pretty pretty set standard. That's uh, all we can do. But that is keep the borders as as secure as possible, and and be checking stuff as it comes in. I don't think we need to shut down the borders to Bali <laughs> just yet, as as we hear uh, on on the ABC radio. Um, but. Once it gets in, and let's say there's a chance of it getting in, yeah. I guess the second mm. concern is, well, we've got to we've got to sort of plan for it coming in, mm -hmm. but not just FMD. It could be again LSD, ASF, whatever it may be, yeah. Yeah. So the next line of defence is is trying to keep it out and eradicate it. Why, why do we? What, why is it important? I know the answer, but I'm just going to make it sound like I don't. Why is it important that we get it out as quick as possible? Well quite simply, aside from the actual on-ground impact of the disease itself in terms of productive capacity, uh, trade, um, trade agreements, um, it's a trade stopper. Lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease, we, we basically shut down overnight and not just in red meat and livestock, it affects other commodities like dairy and wool. 
Um, so you're starting to add the cost up significantly, but um, you're talking about an, an industry, a sector that exports 70 odd percent of what it produces every year. Uh, if we don't uh, have the capacity to be able to export, then what is that going to do to the value of uh, of every um, you know sheep, lamb, beasts, um, goat, whatever, um, cloven hooved species on farm? And uh, you know the arguments that we've made. Um, by extension of that too, is that, you know, if you think that your ultimately your, your land value is intrinsically linked one way or another to the productive capacity of the land, and if you can no longer add, well, you know, a, access 70% of that, what does that, that, what does that do to your LBR? That is a um, debate as well, but whether land is actually linked to commodities, but yeah. that's, that's maybe one for another podcast. Certainly, but it's, it's not one you want to have to test though, is it? No, <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, so, so in terms of, and if we look back to the UK, yeah, <clears throat> It probably took after, like, beef's a harder one to judge because you had BSE mm. beforehand. So BSE, mm. you lost all the trade, and then the trade opened up and then immediately got stopped again by foot and mouth disease. So you had 99.5 or so to 2000, and then 2001, foot and mouth disease. So it's not quite, you can't quite tell how much of the impact was foot and mouth and how much was BSE because it was just stuffed for the best part of a decade yeah. but when you look at sheep you can quite clearly see if you look at the export flows fantastic export flows you know 100 million kilos 100 million kilos 100 million kilos and then foot and mouth disease 25 million kilos yeah. and then it takes you know really to get back up to those similar levels previously it takes another five years mm. so it, it did take a considerable t- amount of time to get the trade flowing back despite the fact that it was pretty much controlled within a year or less yeah. than a year. Yeah. But they're not as export dependent as we are. Yeah, that's you know, right. 70 million people, relatively small uh, flock. How long do you think it would be? And if, if the situation was the same and outbreak was the same as the UK one, how long do you think it would impact upon export flows? Well, it would, it would impact for years to come. So depending on the trade agreement, um, from memory, some agreements you're out for. You're out, you, you need to demonstrate freedom of the disease for up to three years uh, before they'll let you back in. So, as you say, even if you've cleaned it up within six months or, or, or twelve months, the residual impact will carry on for some time in terms of loss of market access. And uh, and that's where the you know the, the integrity and the effectiveness of your of your integrity systems, like your traceability systems, become absolutely paramount because if you're not able to demonstrate that freedom, then it's just another week, another month, another you know quarter that you're out of that export market. I know I said the, it last time. And those, Sorry, are, the, those no, are, I was going to say the risk. The risk of that too is though that if you can't trace it quick enough and it kind of gets out into say something like the feral pig population, then you could have a reservoir that hangs around and hangs around and hangs around and keeps breaking out all the time. Then right. But a lot, mm. a lot of those mm. pigs would just end up lying in a ditch somewhere, would they not? Yeah, they, I think there's, they, get, there's, they get sick and fall yeah. into a bush somewhere. There's been some interesting work done, you know, overseas about the 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 risk associated with you know wild pig populations and so on. It may not be as as bad as what we think for that reason, um, but just the same, you know, if if it, if it sits sits and hangs around within a population, then yeah, I guess there would be a risk of that. And you don't you don't um, want to, again you don't want to trial that either. No, exactly. You don't have to <laughs> so, find that out. Definitely. So so but going going back to the like obviously Matt and I are fairly fairly keen on trade flows and whatnot and and and, mm-hmm. and market access because well we're market analysts. 
Those country, the countries with the most stringent policies on FMD in terms of reopening would likely, I can imagine they'd likely be the countries that we have the strongest premiums for. I'd like I'd imagine so. Japan, China, USA, yeah. Korea. Yeah. It's not going to be some two-bit country somewhere. It's going to be those premium markets that are, that are impacted. Yeah, look, I think I think um, I can't. I don't have the list in, in front of mind in my in my head as to as to where we're out uh, as to every country that we're out of. But but we we lose the top big three: China, you know, Japan, US, like go four and Korea. That's it, you know. And then that's the, most um, of the market gone. Yeah, and then obviously the, the issue is then is the supply supply glut. We're start, start, you know ramping up in in some ways with herd rebuilding and so on, and um, you know you start to get into a scenario where you you've got to send that beef somewhere. Well, then those um, abattoirs aren't able to kill because they're not exporting, and then that's what does that do to the depression of your? So I made the argument last year that you know you'd lose seventy percent of the value of every pro, every every animal that walks off your farm. And someone came back to me and made the point that well, it would actually be more than that because what's your product worth domestically? If you know, probably nothing. So again, it's not necessarily something you want to, you want to test, but um, it's suffice to say the supply the supply side you know backup would be pretty horrendous. Whereas it wasn't quite price wise in terms of the market in the UK, it wasn't that much of an impact because you had a huge domestic market that could mm. consume most of that. Whereas here, what twenty eight percent, Matt. Yeah, I think the thing is too. If you, I'm just thinking back to when when there was say the beef crash in the '70s. So that was obviously part of that was drought inspired as well. But also we lost the UK market in '73, and that was the primary market for our beef mm. exports because the UK joined the EU. So mm. then when the drought came along, there was no export market to speak of, and that was back at a time when per capita we were eating more beef per person per year, right? Um, we don't eat as much nowadays too. So, I mean, even though the domestic market, I guess, in terms of volume of people has grown, there's people that don't eat as much. Um, so, yeah, and they were shooting animals there in the paddocks because there was no real ability to get rid of them. You know, yeah. the domestic side couldn't couldn't take all the product really, right? So you'd almost be back at a scenario that was somewhat similar to that without an export market to speak of. Yeah, certainly, yeah. So the, so the worst case scenario would be if you had foot and mouth disease when the rain goes, yeah? So if you had a drought, let's say the drought comes back, yeah? And then you had destocking at the same time as FMD. That would be the disaster. Because the last time we had a destocking in 2019, 2018, 2019, 2019 yeah? Yeah. Yeah. yeah? At that point, it wasn't actually such a bad thing because we had, funnily enough, African swine fever, mm. which, yeah, pushed, huge, which pushed up demand, the protein yeah. price. Yeah, huge demand from China, taking as much as they could get. Correct. So I think you could you could run all sorts of scenarios, Andrew. I think regardless, whichever way you look at it, it's going to be it's going to be bad. Either way you look at it, it's bad. You know. So we mentioned we mentioned um, EID and in Victoria in particular, and, and more specifically for the sheep flock. So that's that was brought in a few years back now. Because um, EIDs are used in sh- cattle, yeah. Correct, or yeah. nationally, right? So, mm-hmm. there's so so part of that kind of traceability angle is for cattle markets. I think a, a breakout of something like FMD. I'm pretty sure that the the thought process is they're going to be able to trace and track within a matter of days, two or three days, right? Um, whereas because the sheep is a mob-based system without the without the tags, um, it, it, the view is that it could take three to four weeks to be able to track and trace if there was a breakout amongst sheep mobs. Is that right? Yeah, potentially. So that's the difference. 
being in the National Livestock Traceability Performance Standards are something uh, that have basically been established by um, uh, by ag ministers on advice from health officials back in 2004, and they're basically standards of traceability over periods of time from the detection of an outbreak. So standard 1.1 is the big one. You want uh, they say should you should have 90 98% traceability um, back to the farm of origin within 24 hours. Um, and then it goes sort of back from there. So the the the, the more accurate your traceability system, the, the more uh, you know, the more um, that you are more quickly able to meet those um, meet those traceability performance standards. Uh, and the more accurately you can trace animals, the more you can identify cohorts of animals that they've interacted with along the way, you know, across their travels. So. Uh, in the context of an FMD outbreak, there'd be a national livestock standstill. Everything stops. Everything, you know, wool as well. Uh, you know, and 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 that's been simulated um, once or twice since its inception. But the idea then is they they basically need to zero down and contain, and then work out. So animal A has been detected um, as being positive. Say they need to be able to trace that back to its farm of origin as quickly as possible and then any other animal that it might have bumped into it, like, you know, in its travels along the supply chain. Exactly now, the same as about... the COVID track and trace. Yeah, it's, it's, it it's exactly right. Yeah. So, and it was yeah, terrible, so, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you so, think about, you know, you think about the way that tra trade flows happen in agriculture now. We traded some heifers um, this year, uh, just an in and out type scenario over, over four or five months. They started in... Um, Kuma in New South Wales, went to Tasmania, came back to us, and then they were purchased from us and headed to Queensland. And, you know, so that's 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 a huge amount of movement for, you know, um, for, for one lot of animals, and that's happening every day, and it's replicated all the time. So the sooner you're able to trace and the more accurately you're able to trace, the, the more effectively you're able to shut down and contain. The issue with the mob-based system is that because it's visual, you have to visually um, identify those animals and marry them up with what's on paper. So um, you mean physically get the notepad out, write it down? Yeah, well, you've, the got, number you've, down. Got, you've got your NVD, um, mm. your National Vendor Declaration that has um, all the picks of origin. Theoretically, it should have all the picks of origin of that consignment of sheep, that mob of sheep. Um, you know, it should tell you where, where they all came from. And you've got to physically go and verify that. Now, that not only is that a very labour-intensive process, um, it's then very hard to make sure, make sure that you're actually capturing all the cohorts of sheep that they could have come into contact with. And the other issue that they, that they face with the efficacy of a paper-based system is that uh, with sheep, you, you're meant to put it all, uh, every, every pick, a product identification code that, um, of, the, of the origin of those sheep in a mob uh, on that NVD. Um, and, you know, through people's efforts sometimes to do the right thing, uh, they put every pick they think might be in there because they don't want to be seen doing the wrong thing. Yeah. If there's five picks on that list and there's only three that have actually been affected, uh, that all of a sudden then you've got your contact traces, if you will, having to chase rabbit holes for, for no good reason at all. But the point is then the cohorts of sheep that can spin off from that in terms of that they may have been interacted with then just goes blows out into the hundreds of thousands and beyond really, really quickly. And then it just becomes impossible to trace. It takes longer and it's more, much more resource intensive. So what happens, Andrew, if, if that animal in particular, a sheep that's not got any ID, has gone through and it's infected, has gone through a sale yard? What's, what's the, what, how, how much more does that make it problematic then as well? Well, I mean, you go to a sale yard like Ballarat and it might have 60,000 head in it on any, given, on any given day. I forget what day their sale day is, but, um, you know, that obviously becomes immensely problematic. 
Yeah, in Victoria, um, they in Victoria they electronically identify though. So, so all right. yeah, that's true. Yeah. My apologies. Can you yeah, can you can you use Wagga as an example? So so if it's in Ballarat, it's fine. But if it's in Wagga, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good pickup. But so it's a, it'd, be I, a, it'd be a nightmare, wouldn't it? Like because you're not, you get them jumping pants as well, don't they? Yeah. Quick question. You've got to be really realistic about this stuff, guys. Like the reality is. You know, you know, departments of agriculture who'd largely be relied on, whose staff would largely be relied on to do the contact tracing um, are absolutely gassed because they're all, all those same resources got dragged into COVID con contact tracing as well. So it's in a sense, it's been good because they've all been um, going through a process of tracing and all that sort of stuff. So it's probably been a reasonable um, simulation. Uh, but the fact is, they're also uh, they've also been under the pump for two or three years. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of tired people out there. I read one. I read one of the reports on. I, I might get the name wrong. Sheep trace, sheep scan, sheep something too. It was like a. It was like a traceability test. Yeah. 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 I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. It was sheep catcher, perhaps. Sheep catcher. That's the one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I read about it, where well, I thought it was really interesting, and I'm not a uh, traceability guy, uh, but one of the things it said was that they had two staff members per animal doing tracing. Which to me seems like quite a lot of resources if you're talking yeah. about a sales yard with sixty thousand. So we're gonna have one hundred twenty thousand people tracing. Yeah, I think you know this is the, the one point I'd make on on this particular issue around resourcing is that I think we across the sector, right across the sector, regardless of what commodity you're in, when it comes to things like biosecurity. Um, there there is just you come across this, and I myself have probably been guilty of it too. This inherent belief or subconscious belief that if there's a disaster, the government's going to come riding over the hill to save us all. And the simple reality is, after everything that we've been through in the last couple of years, the capacity of governments has been significantly diminished. And so if any of us think that, well, it's all right, the government's just going to pay for it, or they're going to come over the hill and save us all, or they're going to come, they're going to have the resources to be able to do this, that, and the other, they, they simply are not in the same position as they might have been once upon a time. So that, what that means is that we as industry are going to have to be prepared to really step up and take a much greater role um, in in how we prepare for these types of things, and that's in a lot of ways what our reforms, um, you know, were about. Go, go, going back to it, yeah. So, so the gold standard is the cattle EID, yeah. Hmm. Pretty much, yeah. Like you can, it, you it's can got its issues, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But in in terms of, you're not going to get much. You're not going to be able to get much better than that, really. Not, not, not at the moment, but there are, you know, there are system improvements that we've recommended that could achieve a greater level of traceability and efficacy across the board with cattle as well. But, but even on a global standard, the Australian EID system for cattle would be top Certainly. notch. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So the sheep one is, let's call it silver, mm -hmm. bronze, what would you call it? <laughs> Which is good. Middle, middle, middle ground. But, but anyway, but the point was, I was going to get to was, how does our current sheep-based system compare to the sheep-based system that they had in the UK in 2001? Is it better or the same? Couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell you. I haven't, um, I haven't looked at the, uh, at the direct comparison between those two, but, um, uh, yeah, suffice to say, the UK example is an interesting one because they have been, they've also been looking at us um, and been making some improvements around 
their cattle system and trying to centralise their governance um, and uh, create a lot more consistency across uh, their species as well, um, which is what we've sought to do through our reform uh, recommendations to the National Biosecurity Committee. Because I think, look, there's, there's a lot of arguments that, that people use, um, you know, to oppose uh, things like electronic identification for sheep. Um, one of the one of the key principles that SafeMeat and its members, which are, uh, you know, all of the supply chain representatives from the producers all the way through to exporters and processors and so on, uh, is that we have to try and achieve national consistency across the board and across species because foot and mouth disease does not discriminate between species, of course. So it's a one out, all out scenario. Secondly, lumpy skin disease, even though it might not have as great an impact on species outside of cattle, the trade implication is the same. There's a lot of trade, trade agreements that still uh, would mean that, you know, there'd, there'd be, um, uh, sheep would be, would be affected as well. So what that means is that we have to pursue national consistency across species, but importantly across um, all jurisdictions. Hmm. One, which, one is, the, which is a hard the, enough thing to do. Definitely, absolutely. Not absolutely. One of, one of the, so we, we know that EIDs um, have a benefit there, right? And as you said, mm-hmm. in Victoria, it's, a, it's a, I think the phrase you might have used was, um, you know, kind of leading the pack or, or something, you know, uh, ahead, ahead, of, its ahead of its time. Ahead of its time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. With regards to the Victorian introduction for sheep, for EIDs. But some of the criticisms I've heard going around the traps, Andrew, is you know, from farmers sometimes is that, you know, is, is the EID system, is that just telling farmers how to spend their money? Like, shouldn't they be determining how they should be spending their money on these kind of things? Would that, is that a fair criticism or, or should they just be told that you've just got to do it? Well, I think there's, there's, there's a bit of column A and a bit of column B. I think, mean, you know, the, the industry at large has had the opportunity to improve uh, the sheep traces, traceability system for years. Um, and, you know, there, there have been reports that have um, routinely demonstrated that the, the, the efficacy of that system hasn't improved over years and certainly hasn't kept pace. So the, thing to, the first thing to say is that, the, the, you know, the mob-based system does its job for what it needs to do to facilitate trade, um, but there, is, there are better options as technology has improved, as we know more, as the threat profile increases and so on. Um, so... You know, is it telling you how to spend your money? It probably could well be, but the reality is, everybody's um, on. You know, the sustainability of the industry going forward relies on these systems to be effective. So, if people if people don't want to have to spend money on ear tags, they should make the mob based system work. But they haven't, and it hasn't been done for years and years and years. And the reality is, it won't be done. <laughs> if it hasn't been done by now, it's not going to get done. So, um, unfortunately, you have to cater for, I guess, a tail. That always exists across any any sector, and while um, I'm not a big one on government intervention in, in more or less anything, there certainly are circumstances when it comes to things like biosecurity where you just have to make sure that everybody is meeting a basic minimum standard. Now, there will be some folks out there that don't see and still would not believe that there is any benefit towards a national livestock identification system to their personal farm business right now, uh, and and there are many people in the cattle sector that still run that argument doesn't deliver me any benefits. What does it, you know, what does it do for me? The reality is without that system, their market would, their, their product would not access a marketplace. And even if their specific product might, you know, they might not use the LPA NVD, they might supply into, you know, some niche domestics, um, you know, supply. The, the fact is the value of their product is underpinned by our export market access. And so, you know, the NLIS system, okay, at a very base level, if you don't want to interact with it and you don't um, need to, you don't want to use it for management purposes, so on and so forth, it is 
um, you call it a regulatory burden, but it's a necessary one that ensures that you continue to enjoy the, the, the value for your animals, uh, along with your neighbour and me and you guys, um, collectively that, that results from um, export market access. But going, going, going back to you, we, we've spoken probably more about the tags themselves, yeah? Mm. But the tags are just really an accessory to a database. Definitely, they're, they're one piece they, of the broadest they, puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're just an input. They're like a mm -hmm. barcode, effectively, mm -hmm. for entering data into a database, yeah? Yeah. But there's no national database, is there? Well, there is. There is. Um, it, but it uh, certainly for could cattle. do with... Uh, uh, yeah, there is for cattle. Um, there's, you know, the NLIS exists for sheep as well, and particularly with Victoria utilising the, um, you know, uh, EIDs down there. Uh, however, it's it's not it's not necessarily uniform in so much as the 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 requirement of information and the input of information is not uniform across across jurisdictions. So you could you could well it does compromise the efficacy by by its very nature of, of that database. Where if you've got everything that's consistently identified the same way, you're putting the same information into it in into the database in the same format that enables you to be able to then access it and use it um, to to your best advantage. We had so, we had um, we had Andrew Freshwater on a little, a little while back on one of the podcasts, um, and um, and he and he's a Victorian sheep farmer, um, mm -hmm. quite well known in Victoria, I think, for what he does. Um, but he swore black and blue that the EIDs he, he said he was using them for a whole range of kind of farm management practices. So he saw value in them well beyond the biosecurity issue, which he obviously was on board with. Is there is that a, is that a fair argument though as well for some of these farmers to say, well, it's costing me money, but you. You know, can't we say and demonstrate how, as part of your on-farm management, you can use that technology for a whole range of other things, right? That are going to make you more efficient, a better, you know, mm. a better, a better kind of more productive farmer. Yeah, uh, look, the capacity is definitely there, and people like Andrew Freshwater and many others around the traps um, um, have been using EIDs, individual identification, for that purpose for a long, long period of time. But that's that just demonstrates the bandwidth across the across the the production sector. There are those really progressive folks that um, that have been, you know, really getting as much juice out of that lemon as they possibly can um, on a voluntary basis outside of Victoria as well. Um, and, you know, there's an increasing level of partnership between the processing sector and producers um, using individual IDs. I know the processors um, have recently accessed some money out of, um, out of the Commonwealth Government via a grant that uh, has given them the capacity to start inputting reading technology into non-Victorian abattoirs. And those processes, um, you know, I know are aiming at using that, uh, that hardware to be able to create those partnerships to increase value. Like this is just where the, where the industry is headed with regard to trying to, you know, make sure that we're moving away from a commodity-based, um, you know, supply chain to a, to a high-end market, um, you know, achieving a high, higher value. But, you know, look, it, that just demonstrates the bandwidth. There are those at, the, at one end who don't see any value in it, don't feel they need to, their balance sheet looks fine without having to, you know, employ those sorts of techniques. And then you go down the other end to the Andrew Freshwaters of the world who, you know, obviously um, getting as much out of it as they possibly can because they can see the utility in it. I don't think, unfortunately though, that, that argument's never been enough to convince people that it's a requirement. Um, it's just that it has a fantastic utility if you, if you know how to capture it, um, should you choose to go down that route. But that's the idea. You need to make sure that you've got a base, you can cater for everybody in that bandwidth. So you've got a base level system that first and foremost facilitates the traceability of livestock from where they are now back to where they came from at a base level. But then as long as your database and, and your livestock are identified um, equitably across all species, 
the requirements are harmonised nationally so people aren't having to engage with different requirements across different jurisdictions. Then you've got a situation then where, you know, um, other tech providers and so on, people that want to go and use that extra functionality can do so. In terms of like looking at it from a point of view of a miserable Scotsman, yeah? And uh, are we too late? Look, if you think about the risk of FMD at the moment is probably at its highest potentially now for the next 12 months, yeah? Next mm -hmm. two years. We're never going to get a national EID tags plus the associated systems up and running in 12 months, not even two years probably, if you look at how it, long it takes to implement this scale of, of project. How long do you think, in realistic terms, do you think it would take to get the whole system set up and have a high degree of efficacy? I think, I think realistically, you'd be looking at sort of 25, 26, 2025, 26, before you'd, you'd, you'd be able to roll out a national system, you know, for sheep, to bring sheep up into line with cattle, and then also start to harmonise your requirements in the background with regard to the database to make sure that everything's functioning more effectively in the background as well. Um, so you're certainly talking a couple of years, but it's not too late. I mean, is that a couple of years after getting an agreement? Well, yeah, there'll be there'll be literally a couple, just takes time to be able to build uh, the back end stuff um, and then obviously physically roll it out. Um, you know, the feedback that we received through our work from SafeMeet to the National Biosecurity Committee, um, consulting with, uh, you know, grassroots producers, you know, state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction was that they everybody wanted to look at a phased rollout similarly to what they did in Victoria, um, so that the transition is as smooth as possible. And so that's what governments would look at do, look at doing. That's what we recommended, a phased rollout, um, to ensure that that transition is, is as smooth as possible. It just takes time, but you have to start. <laughs> how, how long do you think, do you think, though, like obviously there's, there's a lot of different views and different voices mm -hmm. in that space. Do you think they're any closer to get an agreement? Oh, yeah, certainly. I certainly think so. You know, the difference between when we last spoke, obviously, is there's been a, an LSD and an FMD, uh, you know, incursion in, in, in Indonesia. And, and all of a sudden, it's starting to become a lot, a lot more apparent to people that this stuff is actually real. Previously, you'd have the conversation with producers and, and you'd talk them through the risk. And some people would be looking at you really wide eyed and taking notes, but a lot of other people just glaze over. Yeah, it's not um, a problem. That's, that, that's something that happened elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. It hasn't happened here for 100 years. We'll be right. Uh, the reality is it, 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 it's, um, you know, it's on its way. Uh, hopefully, God willing, it doesn't ever get here. But if it does, we need to be as prepared as possible. But I think that's, that's made people a lot more alive to the risk. There are still a lot of folks out there who um, don't necessarily appreciate the value of what, uh, you know, a system, uh, an integrity system, of which tags are a small part, but a very vital part, um, can do for their business. Because at the end of the day, there, there won't be anybody that doesn't get touched by it. Is, it. is it wrong to call an EID tag and the associated systems an insurance policy? Uh, look, not necessarily. I, um, I think, you know, it is, it is certainly a, a form of insurance. I, I sort of look at it as, a, as um, you know, a preparedness and response capability. So you're preparing to be able to respond as quickly as possible uh, to an incursion to make sure that you are able to get back on your feet, uh, demonstrate your freedom and access markets again as quickly as possible. So, you know, as I've, I said it to, to you guys last time we spoke, uh, Pat Hutchinson from over at um, AMIC, uh, Australian, um, uh, uh, you know, the Meat yeah. Processing Corporation, um, has said on numerous occasions that they, they, they value their exports at about $300 million a week. And so for every week that they're out of 
out of markets, worst case scenario, it's costing $300 million. And that cost isn't just going to be borne by the, by the, by the processes, that gets borne by the whole supply chain. So if we have a system that gets us back in a week sooner than it otherwise would have, that's a huge you know, um, economic uptick. But every week that goes on for that is just another 300, another 300 mil of lost revenue. It's scary, isn't it? Really, when you think about it. Yeah, uh, it, look, it and, is. But the best way to respond is to is to be as prepared as possible. Um, you know, and we've got we know we know what we need to do. The evidentiary base has been has been created. Um, governments have been given the recommendations um, all the way back to two years ago. There's been a lot of work happening in the background between um, governments uh, at a state level. And in, in some jurisdictions, granted more so than others, uh, to position themselves to move on these reforms, we just got to we just got to hook in and get it done. Well, prior planning prevents perf- poor performance. You're gonna you're That's gonna it. say piss, piss poor performance there, won't you? So you're just, <laughs> I've, I've you're been just, told, you're... told not to swear on the podcast anymore. Is that from Auntie Julie or from Linda? Linda, Linda. The, but to summarise it, yeah, in in layman's terms keep it out mm. and if you can't keep it out get it out as quick as yeah. possible yeah because otherwise we lose access to our trade flows uh, the other important thing to think about is a lot of people listen to this podcast are more grains people mm-hmm. fmd would impact grains as well uh, especially if it's in new south wales and queensland if it got into the cattle on feed or the pigs on feed you'd be talking about five million tons of of grains overall which is about um just those two 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 sort of commodities would be impacting on the local basis levels that those farmers receive in in those areas because it is is a good pricing point so it is it does affect the whole industry hay as well like foot and mouth disease stays on hay for 20 weeks at least which again would most of our Chinese trade would pro- of hay would probably go. Mm-hmm. And then obviously milk and everything else would be... And wool, and wool as Andrew and wool. said before, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's all over, isn't it? It's just going to be an absolute nightmare. If you're down in Tasmania and, and we get an incursion up at Bamaga, you know, in the Sentinel herd up there, that's it. <laughs> Everything stops. So, yeah. It, it, no, no one, no one, and, and similarly, uh, you know, over over in Perth, in WA, like we're, we're all we're all out. So this is the thing. The thing I've said to um, some some of my state based colleagues is that, is that we're not going to be able to afford to play the COVID game in this one. There'll be no jurisdictional borders uh, that'll be able to be you know put up where one mm. jurisdiction will be able to operate and, and and the other won't. We we won't be able to play that game. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna sink or swim as a country. And that's why we have to be looking at this with a national perspective and the challenge that we've laid out to all state-based organisations um, that do have issues um, with EID, uh, you know, as a part of a broader system, um, is that you have to look at this from a national perspective. You, you, we can't be, be so parochial as to think that this is not going to affect you because it will. Absolutely. The, There's no way it won't. As the old saying goes, we're all Jock Thompson's bairns. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that another way of saying we're all in this together. We're all, the, we're all the same under God's eyes. So you learned something new. I'll put it up on tomorrow's Scottish proverb and expressions. <laughs> oh dear. Right. Oh, well, 
Matt has to actually go. He's four minutes over. Uh, yep. And he's got to get to the airport. It doesn't I don't know why you're rushing to get to the airport because you're going to be delayed. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's yeah. it's it's, well, it's irrelevant. Got to be there. That slim chance, the uh, you know, the ten percent chance that it actually is on time. You never know. <laughs> yeah. By chance. By chance. Mm. Right, oh Andrew. Thanks for thanks for coming along and regaling us of your it. experience and knowledge. And uh, we'll just have to see what happens. I think a big issue I've seen is, well, if FMD is going to come and it's going to come before that 2025, well, maybe that will encourage people to take EID tags because it, well, it, it won't cost that much to get EID tags post an FMD outbreak because the herd <laughs> might only be 30 million. So you've just yeah. saved, you've saved 30, 30 to $40 million just an EID uh-huh. tag straight away. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we can afford to just see what happens. I reckon we know which way we need to go. We just need to mm. lean into it now and and and, um, and do everything within our power. Because I, I, for one, my attitude personally, and, and a lot of those around me, is we don't want to have to be sitting on the other side of uh, some, you know, some sort of potential disaster, and and having sat there and thought, oh gee, we could have done more. You know, mm. we could have done more, but no, we're gonna we're gonna make sure that we do everything that we possibly can. We've been we've been at it for years now, you know, and we. Been, been trying to make sure that this is not the, the key message that we've been putting forward to producers, particularly producers, it's my background, is that no one is getting out of bed in the morning trying to think of how we can regulate producers and, and, and make, you know, increase their cost base and make their lives harder. Everything that's being done with regard to traceability reform is about making sure that the industry has a capacity to prepare and respond, be resilient and increase the sustainability of the sector and the prosperity, prosperity of the sector going forward. And my kids... You know, my livelihood depends on that. My kids' livelihoods will will, uh, will depend on that. You guys are no different. So uh, we're, we're leaving it all on the field, so to speak. Fantastic wow. summary. Fantastic summary there, Andrew. Thanks for coming on again. I hope uh, people you know, listen to what you say. And um, see you when you've got nothing on. Thanks, guys. Take care. Cheerio.